Some of you may wonder why I pronounce Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, because 40 years ago I was at St. Matthew's Church when, in San Mateo when the Archbishop of Canterbury visited and when he was preaching his sermon, this was Michael Ramsey, he said, Mary Magdalene. So I was just about ready to go to seminary, and I thought, that will be my first eccentricity as an Anglican clergyman, <laughs> that I will pronounce it that way. For those of you who are new to St. Luke's and those of you who aren't, we're very glad you're here, and wherever you find yourself on your spiritual pilgrimage, we're happy that you're here. What I normally do on Easter Day and on, at the Great Vigil, which was last night, is to talk about the fourfold shape of the uh, Easter liturgy, how it constitutes in one sense a template for the entire liturgical year, because thematically these themes come up over and over again, and they fit with the way in which we understand what is authoritative in the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church, and that is the Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. So the Easter proclamation and this fourfold shape is an affirmation of the possibility of transformation and new life, both in the community of faith and in each of us personally in our emotional, spiritual, and mental states, that this is a possibility. So if we look around, I should also say that there is a, a maxim in the Anglican Communion uh, that's in Latin. It's funny because this is the English church and we have a Latin maxim, but it's lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief, or what we pray we believe. And so throughout the liturgical year, you will see how the liturgy presents itself in this way. Because it's important to remember, and many people struggle with this, that the church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. And that means that the biblical witness flowed from the worshiping community who immediately from the jump began to gather and worship Jesus as the risen Savior. And in their worship was the proclamation of that deep and powerful truth. So when we look around in the church, the first thing that we see during the great 50 days of Easter is the Paschal Candle which is a symbol of the light of Christ, the illuminative processes of God at work in the community of faith, corporately, externally, and the illuminative processes of God at work in each of us, shining the light on our dark places, but more importantly, shining the light on those affirmative aspects of our character that permit us to be able to share with other people the practical wisdom that we have learned over time. And so the light of Christ is important. It was symbolic to the early Christians because uh, they, they believed it was a symbol of the pillar of fire in the wilderness leading the people of, of uh, Israel in their wandering in the wilderness to show them the way. So 
Father Thomas Keating, who I talk about all the time, says there are three great theological themes that are presented to us during Eastertide every year. They are God's light, God's life, and God's love. And these things flow through the liturgical actions that Episcopalians believe are not only important but essential. So we have the light of Christ, and then the next piece to the vigil liturgy, and will be now through the great 50 days, is a rehearsal of something we might call uh, the history of salvation. We read about God's saving purposes uh, in the Hebrew Bible, what Christians call the Old Testament. We read about God's constant presence. We read about God's continued fidelity. And we learn some things through this process. Uh, this, uh, I've been watching a YouTube video. I'll have to send the link uh, on our email list because I really commend it. Uh, and one of the people in the, in the video is uh, Professor Sean Kelly, who is the uh, head of the Department of Philosophy at Harvard. And he's uh, not only a philosopher, but he is an expert in neuroscience and about how you think and how all those ideas get, get uh, entwined around one another. And Sean Kelly would like to be a believer. He wants to see what value there is in being a Christian and consulting, as they'd say in academia, the texts to see what it is that's embedded in there that might allow him to cultivate some practices that will lead him to be a better human being. And when he describes the Hebrew Bible, he says this is a great narrative and it provides us with the knowledge that as an individual, we are, we, we, as an individual and as a people, we recognize a care that God has for us a covenant with God that gets made between God and us. The knowledge that the world is a place that we have stewardship over, that it is our obligation or duty to take care of it. And we are cared for. He reminded me about, I have started to read again last week, Blaise Pascal. He was a 17th century mathematician and philosopher, and he gave up on math, which I'm sort of sympathetic to. But uh, he said one thing that doesn't really bear on, on Easter particularly, but I've always remembered it. If the secrets of all human hearts were known, there would be no two friends in the world. But Blaise Pascal had something that's famous called Pascal's Wager. And later in the 18th century, there was an Anglican bishop by the name of Butler who wrote a, a book called The Analogy of Religion where he said, Christianity is probably true. So it would be a good idea to see if you can practice it. And thinking about the history of salvation, Sean Kelly said, you know, uh, I think we need to, to try some of these practices. There's no guarantee that there'll be a take. 
but it can't hurt and it might help. He said, my wife's mother was born in China, and her mother had been trained in ancient Chinese poetry. And she made her daughter memorize hundreds of lines of Chinese poetry every day. And finally, when she was about eight or ten, she said, I can't do this. This is just simply too burdensome. I have no idea why you are making me do this. And she said, well, you're a kid now. You probably won't understand this now. But because of having done this, when you run into a situation where you are in the middle of something, one of these verses is going to come into your head unbidden because it will bear directly on what it is that you're, that, that, that's going on. And not only will you be aided and assisted by that that came into your head unbidden, you will understand that you're participating in a culture that is way bigger than you are and very old. And so these practices have some value about our humanity and what's important to us. Kelly also talked about something called the Turing Text. Alan Turing. He was the guy who worked at Bletchley Hall and worked on all the codes and the enigma and all this sort of business. They had a contest where they had a judge uh, and a computer and people were trying to write programs uh, that would trick the computer into thinking it was human. And so there was a guy who said, I'm going to write a program that will trick, trick the computer. And they were able to do this a few times. And they began to wonder after they did it whether or not uh, the people who were tricking the computer were actually more human or whether people have gotten more like the computer. So that's a question. Moving forward. Practices are important in one way or another. The other thing I should have mentioned is that in the great narrative of the history of salvation, uh, people began to understand that not only were we talking about the history of salvation and the great tradition with a capital T, we're talking about the history of salvation personally, that our personal history is part of the history of salvation. And it's a reminder that God needs each one of us to fulfill his purposes in the cosmos. And it's important. The third part of the, uh, the great vigil, the shape of the liturgy, is the centrality of baptism. And in Easter, if we have no baptisms, we renew our baptismal vows. And we remind ourselves that the baptismal covenant is a, yet another template that we lay over uh, our own spiritual maturity and development. And that baptism provides us with something more than just cosmic spot remover. Years ago, I don't get it so much anymore, but I've had people call me up and say, Father Brewer, um, 
we're flying back to Brooklyn with our little new baby granddaughter. And uh, we'd like to get her baptized before we go so that if the plane crashes, uh, she won't be sent to limbo. Baptism is initiation into the body of Christ. And when you're baptized, you receive the Holy Spirit of God. God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen you. And that is the means by which you learn to develop and nurture your own Christian character and the way in which you can be a person who makes a difference in the world and improves things. That's what all this practices business is about. And finally, the fourth thing is the Holy Eucharist itself. After you're baptized, you you are nurtured by this spiritual food and drink of the body and blood of Christ. And it provides us with the internal strength and stamina and self-regulation to be able week to week, month to month, year to year, to rise to the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of us on a daily basis. That's the benefit of the church. And I became an Episcopalian when I was in my late teens. And one of the reasons I did was I realized that this thing was way bigger than me. Way bigger. And that didn't, wasn't daunting, it was comforting. So when we think about this fourfold shape, we might want to think about what our tradition as Episcopalians uh, provides, what are some of, what, what's some of the outlook that we have about God and the world and humanity and what we think about it. About six or seven years ago, a woman named Barbara, uh, excuse me, a woman named Diana Butler Bass, wrote a book called Christianity for the Rest of Us. And in the introduction to the book, regarding what inspired her to write the book, to study mainline Christianity of all things these days, and its vitality, she says, during the time that I had been tracking mainline vitality. Evangelical voices have grown louder and more insistent that they and they alone are the true Christians, the ones with true doctrine, true morals, and true politics. When people asked me what I was writing about, I typically responded, the other Christians, the ones you don't hear about in the media, the quiet ones. And what she discovered as present in our tradition, for example, are six things that should become part of each person's practice. Openness, generosity, intellectual integrity, emotional integrity, the love of beauty, and the importance of justice. Now here's the thing. Diana Butler-Bass turns out to be an Episcopalian. (laughs) Alan Jones, the former dean of Grace Cathedral, wrote a book again a couple of years ago called um, Common Prayer on Common Ground, A Vision of Anglican Orthodoxy. And he uh, sets out a number of of, uh, predicates, if you will, about our, our tradition and why it's important. The willingness to question 
joined to deep affirmation, the intuitive understanding that the Christian life is both inward and outward, the unique appreciation of the uniqueness of the individual together with the value of what is corporate and traditional, the ability to speak with the old authority and the new culture, the eagerness to be spiritually honest and not willing to disguise the element of conflict in our relationship with God, the openness of a discerning heart, one that knows what matters and what does not. I want to say something about that because in, in uh, Christianity generally over time, they, people get all upset about, you know, what's the bottom line and what would, what, what, what's, if I'm out if that happens or that occurs or this is going to happen. There's many people who, who do that. There's a Greek word, so that means that when the early church was talking about things like that, most of the, the discourse was in Greek. It's called adiaphora. And in English, it would mean matters indifferent. Adiaphora. So the big deal, isn't it, in life, not just in religious terms, is what is adiaphora and what isn't adiaphora? You know? What is essential and what is non-essential? This is true not just in the religious discourse or philosophical discourse, or whatever. It's true in families. It's true internally with each of us in terms of what's important or not. You know the old saying, what ditch are you going to die in? It requires that you learn something about adiaphora before you do. And so it's important for us to have some idea of what matters and what doesn't. The remarkable capacity to hold together things often believed to be separable or opposed to one another. Some people call that black and white thinking. You know, it's either got to be this or it has to be that. It could be both and. Some people find that uh, extremely difficult. That things oppose, they can't be the same. Have you ever in your life been in a situation where you have felt yes and no at the same time? It's not, it's not a very comfortable feeling. But sometimes we have to sit in that for a while to understand that it may not be either or, but both and. And the ability to acknowledge that. I think it's because the Anglican Communion has for nearly 500 years had under one institutional umbrella two mutually exclusive forms of Christianity coexisting. And up until recently, that tension uh, seemed to be a part of the genius. Let me. Easter is an invitation to all of us to embrace the possibility of new life and transformation in our own lives and in the intentional communities of which we are a part. My bishop for many years, William Swing, used to say that he believed in the resurrection because he has experienced resurrection in his own life and seen it in the lives of others in big and small ways. 
That experience, joined to the reinforcement we receive from the community of faith, the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy, is what helps us find God present in the everyday and gives us the ability to be the transparencies and reflections of God's grace and love that we're called to be. Amen.